Welcome to The Dr. Medic, everyone, where I will do my best to bridge the gap between research and practice and the world of helicopter EMS and all of paramedicine. Catch the full effect of these podcasts with all the visuals over on YouTube, but for now, let's get started. A gorgeous Sikorsky S76 is flying over the Ventura Freeway, otherwise known as Highway 101, just north of Los Angeles, California, as it transports eight passengers to a sporting event in Thousand Oaks, California, when they suddenly encounter low clouds just as they begin flying over the city of Calabasas, California. The pilot attempts to climb over these clouds, and as he finally emerges from the clouds, they have actually turned all the way around and are now pointed directly at the ground and descending at an extremely high rate of speed. There is no time to react, and this helicopter is destroyed on impact, killing the pilot and all eight of the passengers on board. Now, you may have heard about this one before. Why? Because this helicopter was carrying Kobe Bryant and consumed the national and international news cycle for quite a while a couple years ago. Not only did this tragedy claim the lives of nine people, including three children, but there was a trial that just concluded a couple months ago, nearly three years after the accident, due to law enforcement and fire personnel inappropriately sharing graphic pictures of the bodies of the victims on this helicopter. You know, we put a lot of trust in the media, and even to our investigatory boards such as the NTSB. But in every story that I tell on this channel, I find that the media missed the mark by a mile, and that the NTSB sometimes made some assumptions that were based on their gut and past experiences as opposed to actual science. Well, this case is no different. When scientists publish studies in journals, we also might not have perfect conclusions or perfect results, but we must disclose those imperfections in a section of the study called limitations so that the reader can be as informed as possible about how we might have come to such a conclusion and what limitations are important. I think that the media and the NTSB could benefit from doing something just like that. This story, the cause, the limitations, and the terrible sharing of photographs. All of this and more coming up on this episode of The Dr. Medic. Now, normally with a crash investigation like this, the identity of the passenger or passengers, you know, really would be irrelevant. Now, I understand that Kobe Bryant was a celebrity and a very influential person to millions of people, but that is not why I am mentioning him by name in this story. I'm mentioning him because the NTSB points out that the relationship that Kobe had with his accident pilot is an important thing. Likewise, the business structure that existed between multiple companies does come into play in this story, and so too does other celebrity names that we'll discuss later in the episode. Now, as I am sure you may have seen before, here are the very quick cliff notes of the chain of events of this crash. This helicopter is flying from Orange County up to Thousand Oaks, California. They fly north in pretty clear weather while they are south of the mountains up until they get up around Glendale. But once up there, they have to fly around Burbank and Van Nuys airports and then transition into the valley on the north side of the Santa Monica Mountains. The pilot encounters clouds, tries to climb up out of them, becomes spatially disoriented, and eventually flies the helicopter directly into the ground, killing everyone on board. Now, when you look at the stories in the mainstream media, you will see that what I just told you is the gist of most of the story, along with the fact that the helicopter company may have had a poor safety culture. But as is usually the case, there is far more to the story. Now, let's try and clear up why Kobe was on this particular helicopter in the first place. You see, Kobe lived down in Orange County, but he also had a strong working relationship with what at the time was called the Mamba Sports Academy up in Thousand Oaks, California. Not only did Kobe host NBA and WNBA workouts at the Mamba Sports Academy, but he also coached his own 13-year-old daughter's AAU girls basketball team at the same facility. Now, Los Angeles has some of the worst traffic in the world, and to add on top of that, Thousand Oaks is separated from L.A. by a 40-mile stretch of the Santa Monica Mountains. Being that Kobe lived in Orange County, this would be nearly a two-hour drive each way. So, like many celebrities and people with his kind of money, he hired a service to do the transportation for him. But he didn't just hire them all on his own, he actually started his own company called Kobe Inc., back in 2014 to handle all of the business dealings, and this included all of Kobe's transportation. 
The transportation service that Kobe Inc. began talks with is called OC Helicopters out of Orange County, and these talks began back in 2012-2013. Now, OC Helicopters is a Part 135 operator who can fly on-demand charter flights day or night, but only in VFR, meaning only when the weather is good enough to look out the window and fly safely. Weather minimums for VFR can vary, but in the type of airspace that they were flying in, they would need about three miles of visibility and a thousand foot ceilings for clouds. This can be more strict with some operators, and there are some exceptions to the rules, such as when a pilot requests what's called special VFR or SVFR. Now, SVFR are special visual flight rules that may be granted to an aircraft that is already flying in VFR conditions, and then the conditions change where basic VFR can no longer be maintained. If the pilot is flying through certain congested areas or around airports, they may request special VFR from air traffic control or the closest airport tower in order to continue their flight in these areas. This is a very important point that we'll come back to later in this episode. So, OC Helicopters was able to charter flights and were authorized to fly a single helicopter being the Eurocopter EC-120. At the time, they only had the one helicopter and two employees for the entire company. So, back in 2012 or so, Kobe Inc. approached OC Helicopters and wanted to forge a relationship to fly Kobe and any of his family and associates around the Southern California area. Kobe was by no means a stranger to helicopters, and it was well known that he would fly on helicopters from his home in Orange County to almost every single home game. He even had a pair of shoes called the Nike Kobe 6s with a colorway called Helicopter. Now, he once gave an interview in GQ magazine where he detailed the reasons for flying around on the helicopter so much, and this being that he could spend more time with his family. Kobe would actually wake up, work out at home, take his kids to school, fly down to the stable center, practice, work, do media stuff, and then take the helicopter home and get back in time to hit the carpool line and pick up his kids. Even though his wife told him that she would pick up the kids from school, Kobe insisted on doing it and even said, no, 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 I want to do that. Because you have road trips and times where you don't see your kids, so every chance I get to see them and spend time with them, even if it's 20 minutes in the car, I want that. Man, I feel that sentiment completely. But even then, Kobe wouldn't just fly with anyone. There were some strict stipulations that had to be in place. The helicopter had to be dual engine, and there had to be a heavy security vetting process for the pilots. After pilots were vetted, it was only these pilots that could fly Kobe Inc. Associates. Now, it was not unusual for OC helicopters to actually broker flights when they received a request that they could not support such as flying eight people or needing an aircraft that was dual engine, neither of which could be supported by their EC-120 aircraft. So OC would broker these flights with different companies and in some cases with Island Express helicopters. There was actually no written agreement between the two companies, but when Kobe would request a flight, OC would contact Island Express and arrange for all of the travel, including the ground transport to and from the airport, and also a backup ground transportation plan just in case the helicopter flight was canceled due to weather. Now, anytime Kobe wanted a flight, all of those involved would create a group text to organize everything, and this included the pilot for Island Express, the OC helicopter employee, and even his limo drivers. Now, remember that Kobe was able to vet all of the pilots and would only fly with four approved pilots with Island Express, with his favorite one being the accident pilot, Aro Zobayan. Now, Aro was a 50-year-old male who lived in Huntington Beach, California, and was hired nearly nine years earlier in 2011. He held a private pilot rotor wing certificate from 2001, and he gained his commercial rotor wing and instrument rotor wing rating in 2007, as well as his flight and ground instructor in 2008. He held a second-class medical certificate with the only limitations being that he needed corrective lenses. He was experienced in the Robinson R-22 and R-44, the Schweitzer S-300, the Bell 206, the A-Star 350, and of course the Sikorsky S-76. He had a total of 8,577 total flight hours, which is a massive amount of time in a helicopter, and he also had 1,250 hours in this type, the S-76. 
Much of his initial hours were flown offshore, with only 400 of his hours being at night, with 75 hours on instruments. This basically means that Aro was a super experienced pilot, but only during the day and only in visual conditions. Aro was the chief pilot for Island Express and was extremely well-liked and extremely respected among the other employees and line pilots. So, the operator actually flying this helicopter then is Island Express Helicopters. They are a privately owned company and were issued their very first VFR certificate back in 1988. They have 25 employees and a total of six pilots. They were authorized to conduct charter flights for paying customers under their Part 135 certificate day or night, but only VFR. At the time of the accident, they had six helicopters with three A-Star 350s and three Sikorsky S-76s. Yes, even though they had these beautiful S-76s that could easily be rated for IFR, they were still a VFR-only company. Well, what does that mean? Well, as I have mentioned in previous videos, flights conducted under Visual Flight Rules, or VFR, can only be done during visual meteorological conditions, otherwise known as VMC. So, in very simple terms, if you are flying under visual flight rules, you can only fly the aircraft in visual conditions, meaning that it is a clear enough day outside that you can look outside, see a few miles, and that the clouds are at least a thousand feet off the ground. But there is another set of conditions called IMC, or Instrument Meteorological Conditions. In order to fly an IMC, your aircraft and the pilot must both be rated for instrument flight rules, or IFR. There are many ways to fly IRFR, which includes things like ILS approaches, ADF, VORs, or GPS. But the main point is that in order to fly IFR, the aircraft has to have all of the proper technology and equipment and be certified, and so too does the pilot. And yes, you can also fly IFR in VMC. You can fly IFR anywhere, but you can only fly VFR in VMC. Clear as mud? Good. And to tell you how serious this is, if you are flying VFR and suddenly find yourself inadvertently in IMC, then you need to declare an emergency and contact air traffic control or ATC for assistance. But if you do it on purpose, it could be against the law and it is a huge problem. So why did Island Express not get the S-76 IFR rated? Well, I could only speculate, but I would imagine that it was simply a business decision. Getting the aircraft IFR rated would have a cost, as would require training all of their pilots. It is something that Island Express could have done, but they were certainly not required to do so. For instance, the overwhelming majority of medical helicopters in the U.S. are not IFR rated and complete the majority of their flights as VFR and only in visual conditions. Now, let's take a look at this amazing helicopter. This was a Sikorsky S-76B model built in 1991 with a total of 4,717 hours on the airframe. This is a big, medium-sized helicopter with twin Pratt & Whitney PT-6B-36A engines. The S-76 could be configured to carry up to 13 passengers, but was set up in an executive configuration seating 8 passengers in the back. It has retractable landing gear and a very high-tech, very cool 4-axis autopilot system more about that later. The instrumentation was fully IFR capable and was not equipped, nor was it required to be equipped with a cockpit voice or flight data recorder. It actually did have a Fairchild cockpit voice recorder when it was first delivered to Island Express, but as allowed by the FAA, they didn't want it and they subsequently removed it. Now, many of the photos that you've probably seen show Kobe in front of this helicopter while it was temporarily wrapped in this pretty cool black look with the Nike logo and Kobe's trademark Black Mama logo. But the helicopter was not outfitted like this on the accident day and instead was painted white with blue and teal stripes. And it was this very helicopter that Kobe took to his final home game on April 13, 2016, where he absolutely destroyed the Utah Jazz with 60 points and scored the game-winning shot. So on the accident day, Kobe had chartered this flight with OC Helicopters, who then brokered the flight with Island Express to fly from John Wayne Airport in Orange County to Camarillo Airport on the other side of the Santa Monica Mountains. Kobe was taking his 13-year-old daughter Gianna to a girls' basketball tournament at the Mamba Sports Academy up in Thousand Oaks. A 14-year-old teammate of Gianna's named Alyssa was also on board, as was her mother Carrie and her father John. Also on board was another teammate, 13-year-old Peyton, her mother Sarah, and one of the assistant coaches of the girls' basketball team, Christina. 
The planning for this flight began the previous day and is all documented in text messages between the pilot, Ara, Kobe's drivers, and the executives with OC Helicopters and Island Express. The text messages show that the previous day they flew the exact same flight out to Mamba Sports Academy. And at about 5.30 p.m. the previous evening, they do discuss the weather for the next day's flight and acknowledge that the weather could be an issue and that they will have to confirm the next morning. But the next morning, the pilot confirms at 7.30 a.m. that the weather is looking okay and that they are finalizing arrangements for the flight as he files a company VFR flight plan. Well, how does the pilot check weather anyway? Well, there are many different ways to do this. They can look at radar depictions, satellite, review other pilot reports, look at air mets, and they can even use the HEMS tool, which was originally designed to assist medical helicopters by easily color-coding geographical areas into VFR, marginal VFR, IFR, and even mountain obscuration. As you can see, at the time of the accident, the HEMS tool is showing nearly the entire flight path as either marginal VFR or IFR. If this was a medical flight and the aircraft was not rated for IFR flights, there is no way in the world that they would have taken this flight and it would have been declined instantly. But there is no evidence to show that the pilot accessed this HEMS tool. He did have a weather app on his iPad mini and on his iPhone called the ForeFlight app, which is perfectly common for pilots to use. And the data did show that the pilot's phone and his iPad actually hit the servers of ForeFlight at 7.31 a.m., and 8.02 a.m. prior to the flight, but there was not any evidence to show that the pilot actually received any weather briefing from this app, and it was unknown whether he utilized other sources for weather prior to the accident flight. And likewise, you can also see that the National Weather Service's Air Med Advisory was showing the accident area was IFR and had conditions for mountain obscuration, meaning you could not see the mountains. But like I said, there is no evidence to show what sources the pilot used to check weather. He was very experienced in this area, and he had been flying through these same mountains for many years. And local meteorologists have stated that the accident area included valleys and elevation changes that did make for slightly colder temperatures, and that it was normal for pilots to expect to have worse visibilities and worse cloud ceilings in this area. Now, this is a heavily populated area, so there are many pictures and videos of the accident area during the time of the accident. This time-lapsed video is pointing directly at the accident site and shows a clear picture of the valley from a few hours before the crash until later that afternoon. But either way, the pilot files his company VFR flight plane with plans to fly north from John Wayne Airport and follow just to the east of downtown Los Angeles, just past Dodger Stadium, and then once into Glendale to contact Burbank Airport for instructions on how to proceed west towards Camarillo over Highway 101. Now we can also see that the relative humidity was near 100% through most of the valley that morning. You can see the accident site here in that all of the 98s and 100s are showing that the relative humidity was 98% or 100% which are prime conditions for fog. There are also many alert wildfire cameras that are placed on the tops of the Santa Monica Mountains facing to the north. And we can see that right around the time of the accident that there was a heavy cloud layer in the valley and what you can see are the actual tops of the clouds. There were even some baseball field cameras to the north that were facing south directly at the accident site and you can see how cloudy the conditions are. And just a few minutes before the crash occurred, you can see the helicopter flying over the 101 over a construction site and then disappearing straight into the clouds. Now, you might be thinking, well, why didn't they just take the shortest route and fly over the water and around to the west? Or why didn't they just fly over the mountaintops? I mean, the mountaintops are only 3,100 feet high in this area, and helicopters can certainly fly far above that, especially the S-76. Well, Island Express did have authorization to fly over water as they routinely flew out to Catalina Island and did offshore oil operations. But to fly offshore, the helicopters have to have floats for flying over the water, and they also have to worry about designated traffic patterns. In an area as congested as Los Angeles, helicopters cannot really just fly anywhere. There are many big airports with lots of commercial traffic flying in and out, and one of them is LAX. Now, to stay low enough and get around LAX, they would have to fly out over the water quite a bit, which just adds another level of risk that is unnecessary when you can fly over land, and it would have made the flight simply too long. 
Flying over the mountains also would have been a risk. There are commercial flight patterns in that area that fly over those mountains, and given the forecast, they definitely would not have been able to fly over the mountains as they then would have been flying on top of the clouds, which would have put them into instrument conditions where they would have needed IFR ratings and approvals, which they didn't have. So the only way to get to Camarillo was to fly along the previously mentioned pathway and to stay below the cloud layer. Now, this next part of the story is going to talk about the radio traffic between the pilot and air traffic controllers. I know this part may seem mundane at first, but I believe it has a major part to do with the story and one that the NTSB seemed to just gloss right over. Now, in very simple terms, you really have two main types of air traffic controllers. Those that work in the towers that you see at the airports and those that are not at the airports and work in dark rooms staring at radar and computer screens all day. They are both considered air traffic controllers, but the ones that are working in the towers at airports are mainly called tower controllers, and the ones in the dark computer room are called radar controllers. Now, each big airport has a number of controllers working in the tower who are basically responsible for controlling the traffic on the ground at the airport and also in the air within a certain distance around the airport, which is usually around five nautical miles, and they typically have to be able to see the aircraft visually. They have to be able to lay eyes on what it is they are controlling. But even though they should be able to see you, they also have their own radar and will be tracking any aircraft in their airspace via this radar. They know who each aircraft is by having them squawk a four-digit identifier code from their aircraft's transponder, which basically lets them know who you are when they see you on their radar screen. The controller will tell the pilot to squawk and then give them four numbers, which the pilot then enters into their transponder, which then shows up on the controller's radar with the same four numbers. Think of it kind of like when you get a text message where you need to confirm a number for some online account. Squawking just confirms to the controllers that the little blip on their screen matches who they are looking at and who they are talking to. So these tower controllers at the airport are not only responsible for taxiing, takeoffs, and landings, but they also have to be responsible to have two-way radio contact with any aircraft that is transitioning through that roughly five-mile radius around their airport. That means that if you are flying in a helicopter and want to fly within five miles of a controlled airspace around another airport, you must make radio contact contact with the tower of the airport and the tower controllers will provide the pilot with clearance and instructions on how to safely navigate around the airport in order to avoid incoming and outgoing aircraft. But, and this is very important, if you are not flying in a controlled airspace, you are under no obligation to be talking to anyone on the radio. And if you are flying VFR, you can pretty much fly your route without talking to anyone on the radio at all. You also normally would not squawk anything as no one would be seeing you squawk since you are not being tracked by radar. And 99% of helicopter flights, including EMS and charter flights, are operated this way. As long as they are not in an airport's controlled airspace, they can fly their flight plane with no further radio communication. So what is radar control for? Well, remember that they are not at the airport and have no visual contact with aircraft and only see aircraft on their radar screens. But more importantly, while they may be able to see aircraft on their screen that are flying low, they are typically not paying attention to them at all. The radar controllers are really only paying attention to the aircraft that have filed IFR plans and are flying at high altitudes or are doing approaches and departures. The radar controllers keep these airliners separated by a certain distance front to back, but also by a certain distance vertically, and basically organize and line up aircraft as they start approaches and departures from airports. And as these aircraft fly along, they are being passed off from one set of controllers to the next. In short, for a basic airliner, they would start their flight talking to the airport tower, then talk to departure, then talk to center, then approach, and then another tower at the next airport. But helicopters flying around cities, they would not be doing this. Again, they are required to be talking to airport towers if they are in their airspace, but otherwise are not required to talk to radar control, and typically they do not do so, except in a few instances. One of them being if they have declared an emergency, and another one being if they have requested flight following. Well, what is flight following? Flight following is when a pilot is flying in an uncontrolled airspace under VFR conditions and then specifically calls up radar controls on their radio and asks for flight following. 
Flight following is considered an additional service by radar control, and once flight following is initiated, the controller will monitor the radar of the aircraft to, quote, observe and note deviations from its authorized flight path, airway, or route. In other words, this service will ensure that the pilot has a radar controller watching him on radar who will keep them apprised of other traffic targets that could be a threat and also to provide safety alerts about terrain or other obstructions that could be a threat. Now, according to the Air Traffic Control Handbook, this quote, additional service is not optional on part of the controller, but rather is required when the work situation permits. This means that as long as the controller is not overloaded with separating other IFR traffic, that they are required to help and provide this service. And finally, we need to understand how these controllers utilize checklists. When one controller gets up from their chair to take a break, or be relieved by an oncoming controller, there are required processes for this that are listed in the Air Traffic Control Handbook under their standard operating procedure for, quote, transfer of position responsibility. And this outlines a step-by-step -step process for conducting a position relief briefing and transferring position responsibility from one specialist to another. The oncoming controller is first to follow the checklist, and part of this checklist is to fully brief the oncoming controller on things like traffic, items of special interest, anything out of the ordinary, and a brief communication status of all known aircraft. All of this should be done while they are both plugged into their control station for several minutes and ensuring that there are no surprises for that oncoming controller. And the last piece to know about radar controllers is that there is a process for confirming that you are being tracked by radar. Once they tell you to squawk, you know that you are being tracked, and then when they are no longer tracking you, they have to say that radar services are now terminated so that the pilot knows they are on their own or that they need to get radar services from the next airport or from a radar controller. Now, when the pilot departed John Wayne Airport, he had VFR conditions and was flying in you know pretty good weather. They continued north and passed downtown Los Angeles, then they passed Dodger Stadium, and then into Glendale at about 800 feet above the ground. Now once into Glendale, the pilot contacted Burbank Airport Tower and requested to transition through their airspace. Burbank reports that they are now IFR at this time and that they just had a SkyWest commercial airliner do a go-around during their approach to runway 8. 72 Echo X-ray, Burbank Tower, Burbank Hill, 3019, Burbank Clash, Charlie, surface area is IFR, stay intention. Yes, we can uh, maintain, uh, special VFR action for special VFR transition on the 101 Westbound 2. November 2 Echo X-ray, hold outside Burbank Clash, Charlie airspace, I have an aircraft going around. A go-around is when a pilot decides to abort their landing and go around and try again. Pilots plan for a go-round on every single approach during every single landing, and there are planned procedures for such an event. Go-arounds do happen every day around the world, but it happens a very low percentage of the time. Anything can trigger a go-around. It could be a safety issue, it could be poor visibility, or it could just be a gut feeling that the pilot has. Either way, when a go-round is called out, the aircraft will abort their landing and try again. When the accident pilot requested to transition through Burbank airspace, he was told about the go-around by the SkyWest plane. He was told that Burbank was IFR and was also told that the next airspace he was going to fly through, Van Nuys Airport, was also IFR. And he was finally told that he would need to hold outside of the airspace for several minutes while the tower dealt with the go-around by SkyWest as well as several other waiting departures and arrivals. The pilot is also told that the last reported cloud tops in the area are 2,400 feet. It's going to be a little bit. I got a citation on a Niner Mile final and then that go around that I just had. Okay, we'll continue holding to Echo X-ray. November 2 Echo X-ray, and for your planning purposes, you can expect to transition to the north side of the airport. I just spoke with Van Eyes on the line, and they've got multiple IFR departures coming off of runway 16. Follow the 5 freeway, maintain special VFR, correction, special VFR condition, at or below 2,500. Maintain special VFR at or below 2,500 I-5 northbound 2 Echo X-ray. Number 2 Echo X-ray, continue following the 5 northwestbound to join the 118, and then uh, Van Nuys will work you through. Radar services terminated, remain at Squawk, contact Van Nuys helicopters, 119.0. 
Now, Kobe's helicopter is circling over Glendale outside of Burbank airspace for about 12 minutes. And at this point, I think most would agree that the signs were there that this flight should have been aborted. Burbank is showing IFR. Van Nuys is showing IFR. And if they are showing IFR, it is only going to be worse once the aircraft gets into the valley near Calabasas. But onward they continued. Now, it is very common, especially in Southern California, for designated helicopter routes to follow large ground freeways. They are easy to see from the air. It can always have a guarantee that there will be no terrain above them. The Los Angeles area is no exception. So once Burbank clears the helicopter, they tell the pilot to squawk 0235 and to follow Interstate 5 to the north and fly around Van Nuys Airport following the 118 due to Van Nuys having several departures taking off to the south. The Burbank controller then coordinates this transition with the Van Nuys controller, terminates radar contact with the helicopter, and advises them to contact Van Nuys Tower. The pilot then does call Van Nuys Tower and requests that special VFR transition clearance we talked about earlier. He requests SVFR because Van Nuys is showing that they are IFR, but the pilot is telling the tower that he can see out of the aircraft and it is in VFR conditions. Van Nuys approves this transition request and instructs the pilot to start turning southwest of the airport and start heading towards the 101, where he would transition to the west towards Camarillo. Van Ice helicopter to Echo Extra with you for the special VFR transition. We are currently at 1400. Helicopter 7 to Echo X-ray Van Ice Tower. Wind calm, visibility 2 and 1 half. Ceiling 1100 overcast. Van Ice altimeter 3016. Cleared into Van Ice class delta northeast of Van Ice along the 118 freeway westbound. Advise when you're in VFR conditions or when you're clear of the Van Ice class delta. To Echo X-ray, advise in VFR condition, uh, and then we stay on the uh, 118, and we're currently at 1400, and we have 0235. The Van Nuys controller then asks the pilot if he wants to talk to SoCal. Helicopter 2 Echo X-ray, thank you. And once you clear Van Nuys Delta, did you want to talk to SoCal? Affirmative, 2 Echo X-ray which is the Southern California radar controllers. Now remember, they are the ones sitting in the dark room looking at radar depictions. This conflicts though with the NTSB report as the NTSB report says that the controller told him to contact SoCal, but as you can hear, she asked the pilot if he wants to talk to SoCal and he says affirmative. Helicopter 2 Echo X-ray, thank you. And once you clear Van Nuys Delta, did you want to talk to SoCal? Affirmative, 2 Echo now remember, he does not have to talk to the radar controllers, but he chooses to anyway, probably because he might be foreseeing that he would need their assistance with navigating through the valley on his way to Camarillo. So it is now 9.40, and now that the pilot is out of the airspace of both airports, he contacts SoCal and tells them that he is transitioning to the west and headed towards Camarillo. SoCal asks if he is going to stay that low the whole way to Camarillo, and the pilot responds in the affirmative. Now this is where things really seem to go awry. The SoCal controller then advised the pilot that he is too low and would lose radar and radar contact with him at that altitude and to just squawk VFR until he can call the next airport, which is Camarillo. SoCal helicopter, 72 Echo Extra with you transitioning in VFR condition at 1,502 Camarillo. Helicopter 72 Echo X-ray SoCal approach, Roger, and you just gonna stay down low at that for all the way to Camarillo? Yes, sir. Low altitude, 2 Echo Extra. 2 Echo Extra, Roger. Uh, I'm going to lose ra radar and uh, comms with you probably pretty shortly, so you're going to squawk VFR, and uh, when you get closer, go to Camarillo Tower. Okay, guys. We'll squawk VFR, 2 Now, this controller does not even give the pilot a chance to request flight following, which he is certainly about to do, and tells him he is probably about to lose him, so just forget about our services and just squawk this and then talk to Camarillo when you get there. The only time that ATC really would be able to deny this request is if they were overloaded with separating other IFR traffic, but in post-accident interviews with the controllers, they all acknowledged that they were not very busy at the time. Just three minutes after this communication, this controller was done with his shift and a position relief briefing took place at 9.43. Just two minutes later after that, at 9.45, the pilot 
that calls back and says that he is going to start a climb and go above the cloud layers and also says that he is going to stay with SoCal, meaning that he wants to stay in contact. SoCal 4 helicopter, two aircraft. We're going to go ahead and start our climb to go above the uh, layers and uh, we're going to stay with you. Now, remember, one of two things is taking place here. Either the pilot is completely breaking the law and purposely flying into instrument conditions without an IFR flight plan, or he is having an emergency. But if he is having an emergency, he should have declared a mayday and said so, but he did not. So when the pilot makes this communication about attempting to climb above the clouds, remember the Burbank Tower told him the cloud tops were at 2,400 feet. It took the controller nine seconds to respond. Now, why did it take so long? Probably because we now have a new controller sitting at the station, and it is 100% obvious that he was caught way off guard by this communication from the pilot, and he asked the pilot for his location to which the pilot provides it. The controller then asked the pilot to ident. This means the pilot actually needs to look over to his left to his transponder and hit the ident button, which will confirm the squawk code which the pilot acknowledged. Echo four helicopter, two echo X-ray. We're gonna go ahead and start our climb to go above the uh, layers, and then uh, we can stay with you. Two echo X-ray. Uh, where are you? Uh, just west of Van Nuys. Two echo. The pilot is now squawking 1200, which means that he is flying under VFR, but he only squawked that 1200 because that is what the first controller told him to do. And at this point, the helicopter is in a nice, steady climb with a slight leftward turn. And this leftward turn appears to coincide with the 101 freeway below, and they climb 1,000 feet in just 36 seconds. The ident comes through appropriately on the controller side, who then asked the pilot if he was requesting flight following, and the pilot responded affirmative. The controller then asked the pilot to state his intentions, to which the pilot said he was trying to climb to 4,000 feet, to which the controller again responded with, what are you going to do when you get there? Two Echo X-ray. Yeah, you're uh, selling a 1200 code. Uh, are you requesting flight following? Yes, sir. Two Echo X-ray. Two Echo X-ray. What do you say intentions? Uh, we're climbing to 4,000 Two Echo X-ray. And then what are you going to do when you get to altitude? Uh, two Echo X-ray. You're uh, still too low level uh, for uh, flight following at this time. Two Echo X-ray, SoCal. The pilot did not respond, and there were no further transmissions from the helicopter. The flight tracking shows that once the controller started asking the questions and giving some commands, that the nice leftward turn turned into a massive, uncontrolled left-hand turn that eventually caused the aircraft to be pointed almost directly at the ground. At this point, the pilot has now become spatially disoriented, where the sensation in his brain is telling him that he is upright, even though he has leaned extremely over to the left. In fact, at the very moment that the pilot told the controller that he was trying to climb to 4,000 feet, he was already pointed at the ground and was traveling at over 200 miles per hour straight towards the ground. The aircraft then continued to descend at a rapid rate of speed and impacted the side of the mountain where the aircraft wreckage was spread out over several hundred feet. While there was a post-impact fire, and contrary to a lot of reports, None of the passengers suffered any thermal injuries, and they were all killed by the traumatic force of the crash. There was actually a mountain biker up on this mountain who witnessed the entire end of this flight, stating that he could hear the helicopter, and then it emerged out of nowhere through the bottom of the clouds and crashed just a couple of hundred feet from where he was standing, with debris being scattered, and then a few moments later, there was an eruption of fire. The controller attempted several more times to reach the helicopter and was never able to do so. He did not report this lack of communication to his supervisor, and it wasn't until about one hour later that SoCal was informed by the owner of the helicopter that it was looking for its location and that the sheriff's department had reported a helicopter crash. So what in the world was the issue with the communications here? Well, it is clear to me that the pilot found himself in inadvertent IMC or double IMC but failed to declare an emergency. Instead, he was vague in his communications and simply told the controller that he was climbing to 4,000 feet. 
But it is also possible, and probably very likely based on the radio transmissions, that the pilot thought that he was receiving flight following and may have been very confused when he was told to squawk 1200, which is a VFR code, and then heard the confusion in the controller's voice as if he wasn't even aware that this helicopter existed. Why did he sound like that? Because he wasn't aware. Two Echo X-ray, where are you? In post-accident interviews, it was shown that when the first SoCal controller left his post and was relieved by the new controller that they did not follow the checklist as required and that they did not sit together for a few minutes to review what was going on. The off-going controller, in my opinion, seemed dismissive and did not want to flight follow this helicopter and it seemed like the accident pilot was an inconvenience to him and therefore he told him to stick to a VFR flight and then never told the oncoming controller that he even existed. So when the oncoming controller hears the pilot on the radio, he is extremely confused. It takes him nine seconds to respond and then he still tries to verify who he is talking to and what exactly the situation is. In order to do so, he has to ask the pilot who he is, where he is, to ident, and then ask what his intentions are and what exactly he plans to do when the pilot reaches 4,000 feet. In hindsight, it was clear that the pilot thought that he was getting flight following and then was having an emergency, but he didn't confirm the flight following and he never declared an emergency. But it is also very possible that had the offgoing controller given a proper relief report to that oncoming controller, that this oncoming controller would have been looking out for terrain and bad weather for this helicopter instead of not even knowing that he was there. The controllers acknowledge during interviews that even though many helicopters fly this route, that they do not get a lot of helicopters that call them for assistance. When asked about VFR conditions in this area, the offgoing controller even stated, I would not know because we do not talk to VFR aircraft that remain that low. We still were not even really talking to this guy. Well, what about losing contact with the helicopter? The controllers also noted that since he was squawking 1200 as a VFR flight, that they did not need to report the pilot as lost radar or comms because they did not feel that they were even really tracking him in the first place. So even though this helicopter crashed while talking to the radar controllers, the controllers did not report the loss of communication to anyone. Remember that this pilot was doing a nice, easy climb when he first entered the IMC, and it wasn't until the controller made several requests and commands that the pilot started to become disoriented. This is most likely due to stress overload, which would have contributed to an overall lack of situational awareness. The pilot was probably facing forward, focusing on his flight, but then had to turn his head to ident as the controller requested. There are supporting studies that show when a pilot is flying in IMC that even a slight turn to tune a channel on their radio can be enough to induce an illusion and lead to spatial disorientation. To add to this, he is also tasked with answering the radio. Even in a study that I published recently, we have found that in high dynamic situations, stress can lead to tunnel vision, which then leads to poor situational awareness, which is exactly what happened in this situation. And of note, if you remember that the cloud tops were listed at 2,400 feet, well, the data shows that the pilot made it to 2,370 feet, just 30 feet short of the cloud tops when he was asked to ident, which very possibly could have led to a Coriolis effect, which ultimately leads to spatial disorientation. In short, human beings have no way of telling the difference between gravity and acceleration forces unless there is some visual reference to aid them. In these cases, the pilot needs to rely on their instruments in order to avoid such disorientation. The pilot needed to fly by his instruments, climb out of the clouds, and then receive vectors from ATC to a safe landing area. He also should have activated his autopilot, at least by holding altitude or heading, and also to slow down. But for some reason, he did neither. But he didn't declare an emergency either. The controllers weren't even paying attention to him, and when he did call for help, The controllers were confused. And then finally, the controllers most likely made things worse by adding lots of workload to an already stressful situation. Now, there was obviously a full investigation completed by the NTSB. And typically, with the fatal helicopter crashes that I have reported on, the final report can take up to several years to be finalized and published. But in this case, the final report was published just four and a half months after the accident. I have never seen a helicopter crash investigation with such detail and the use of all available resources as as I have with this one. I mean, they x-rayed just about every single bulb they could on the instrument panel of this aircraft. They did a thorough forensic analysis of the engines and transmissions. 
they even were able to recover every single iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, and a Samsung Galaxy phone and perform detailed analyses on each of them as well. In the end, there was absolutely nothing wrong with the helicopter, nothing wrong with any of the instruments, nothing wrong with the engines and transmission, and there was no meaningful evidence on any of the personal electronic devices. And in the end, the NTSB found that the probable cause of this accident was the pilot's decision to continue flight under visual flight rules into instrument meteorological conditions, which resulted in the pilot's spatial disorientation and loss of control. Contributing to the accident was the pilot's likely self-induced pressure and the pilot's planned continuation bias, which adversely affected his decision-making and Island Express Helicopter's inadequate review and oversight of its safety management processes. Yes, the pilot had many opportunities to abort this flight and chose not to and was probably suffering a bit of get there otherwise known as a planned continuation bias. Yes, that's a real thing. Check out one of my other videos for a more detailed response on this. Now, I have an extremely hard time seeing how the NTSB could conclude that contributing factors were the pilot's likely self-induced pressure in the inadequate review and oversight of Island Express helicopter safety management processes. In the supporting paperwork, as well as in the four-hour public NTSB board meeting for this incident, the NTSB tries to say that because this pilot had such a close relationship with Kobe that he didn't want to let him down, leading to his self-induced pressure to complete the flight. Now, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to determine if this was the case. This pilot, as well as other pilots at Island Express Helicopters, regularly flew affluent and famous people. There were many canceled flights in just a few months leading up to this accident, which shows a history that Island Express was more than willing to cancel flights and lose revenue from other celebrities such as Lil Dicky, Los Angeles Clippers star Kawhi Leonard, and even Kylie Jenner, and all of these canceled flights that they had before were lost revenue. And during the board meeting, you can even hear the NTSB board members press the issue and question how this conclusion could be made. Now, when pressed, the NTSB human factors investigator who came to this conclusion even repeatedly said that the relationship may have contributed. Possibility, but there is little objective evidence on which to base the finding that it actually contributed to the pilot's decision making. And to me, the conclusion seems speculative. Uh, understand that relationship and the effect that it can have on pilot decision-making. I, I do have a concern that we don't have much in the way of concrete indications that that was actually what occurred in this situation. Well, if it may have contributed, it also may not have contributed. That is not how science works, and I'm a bit disappointed that the NTSB included this as a contributing factor in their conclusions, as there is absolutely no way to prove this was the case. In reviewing all of the practices and documentation of Island Express, it certainly appears to me that they implemented and embraced a just culture and a safety culture. They held safety meetings. They had a reporting system. They canceled flights. They put their pilots through training on get their itis. And more importantly, they even participated in a safety management system, or SMS. Now, an SMS is a top-down, organization-wide approach to managing safety risk and assuring the effectiveness of safety risk controls. It includes a systematic procedures, practices, and policies for the management of safety risk. Now, did you know that there are over 1,900 Part 135 operators in the United States? Out of those 1,900, there are only 17 of them with a fully accepted SMS by the FAA. Now, that does not mean that the other 1,883 operators are not safe. Now, forming an SMS is a major undertaking, both logistically and financially. And as we'll see later on, the NTSB took major exception to the fact that Island Express did not have a fully accepted SMS with the FAA. But they even note that an SMS is not required by the FAA and the overwhelming majority of air operators do not have an SMS. Yet the NTSB states that had Island Express SMS been required by the FAA, it would have been subject to FAA's oversight to inspect the SMS for alignment with FAA objectives and to provide feedback to help the company implement the entire program. Well, this may be true, but from what I found, there was nothing wrong with Island Express's SMS in the first place. The only documentation that shows me any real issue with Island Express's SMS is the fact that their CEO acknowledged that they were not very involved in it. Yes, in the FAA's SMS, this is a requirement, 
But even though Island Express didn't have this, I see no connection between the CEO's lack of involvement and this crash. Just because there is a crash, albeit a bad one like this, does not mean that the entire company is unsafe. Every major airline in the U.S. has had some form of fatal incident, and I don't think anyone would say that any of them are unsafe. You can even see here where the lead investigator of this accident investigation seems to disagree with the NTSB chairman on this very issue. I think you said that Island Express was a safe operation. Is, is that, am I paraphrasing that correctly? Um, I would say there wouldn't be anything, any indication that Island Express was uniquely unsafe or a, a problem operator. Which company had this crash? Mr. English? Well, Island Express, of course. So I'm seeing a, a disconnect here. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, this company had a crash and you're saying there's no, nothing to indicate that they were not safe. Well, you asked, I, I think this, the concept of that questioning was how a consumer could you know, detect an unsafe operator. And, and there's, there was nothing inherent about this um, this operator that would that would indicate they were unsafe. I mean, I, I think we see we see crashes with other carriers and don't particularly indicate that they are unsafe. The fact of the matter is that this accident was caused by two things. The pilot's poor decision to continue into an area where IFR was forecasted and likely, and a total miscommunication between the pilot and radar controllers, including the radar controller's deviation from standard operating procedure while relieving another controller. Now, I know that the FAA will soon be requiring an SMS for all Hart 135 operators, and this is bound to ruffle a lot of feathers across the entire industry. Maybe it is needed and maybe it's not. I mean, SMS is quite in-depth and complicated, and the financial and political ramifications of requiring such a mandate is huge. Is it possible that the NTSB will seize any opportunity to push the SMS? Yes, I'm sure it is possible. Did that happen in this case? And I don't know, I'll let you decide that. But either way, I'm not saying that SMS is bad. In fact, I'm sure that they are really good and do a lot to improve the safety culture. But just because you have an SMS doesn't mean that your company is safe. I worked at a helicopter EMS service that had an SMS, and trust me, there were some serious safety issues here and there. Again, not a bad thing to implement an SMS. I just don't see the connection between an SMS and the cause of this particular accident. Why? Because the research did not appear to show that Island Express had a poor safety culture, a lack of a just culture, or was an otherwise unsafe operator. In fact, Sikorsky, the maker of the helicopter, also did their own full independent investigation of this incident, and they concluded that the probable cause of this accident was spatial disorientation of the pilot and subsequent loss of control following entry into instrument meteorological conditions. I think it is important to point out that Sikorsky makes no mention of self-induced pressure on the pilot or any problems with Island Express's SMS. But either way, the NTSB made absolutely no mention about the air traffic controller miscommunications or their failure to follow the rules as laid out in their own handbook. The only way that I even found out that this happened was by reading through every single interview transcript and there is the data right there, plain as day. The pilot requested flight following, and even though the controllers were obligated to provide it, they punted it and refused the request because of a possibility of losing radar contact since the helicopter was so low. Then, they did not follow their checklist when relieving one of the controllers, leading to the accident controller having absolutely no clue what was happening when the pilot communicated that he was climbing up through the clouds to 4,000 feet. This pilot would have had no way to know that the first controller he was talking to was relieved and that no one knew he was there or was watching him. This all led to massive task overload, stress, tunnel vision, spatial disorientation, all ultimately leading to the crash and the deaths of all nine of these people. And with the exception of the spatial disorientation, none of this was in the NTSB's final report or probable cause. And as if all this wasn't bad enough, when the first responders showed up to respond to this accident on the ground, several of them took many pictures of the dead bodies and random body parts and then shared them inappropriately afterwards. Now, when it comes to taking pictures of scenes, here's what I can tell you. As a paramedic, the big concern with photographing any scene, traumatic or medical, is violating the federal law known as HIPAA. 
In short, this law is really about health insurance, but it also says that no private medical information can be shared, including pictures, without the patient's consent unless it is relevant to continued patient care. This is why you have to sign that patient privacy paperwork every time you go to the doctor or dentist or the hospital. Without this consent, nothing can legally be shared. This includes photos, and the fines from HIPAA are serious. But in the grand scheme of things, HIPAA does not really apply here as these photos were not taken by paramedics in the course of patient care. They were taken by the sheriff's department and by the fire department doing firefighting stuff. Why would they be taking photos? Well, there were nine deaths and lots of property damage, so law enforcement would certainly have reason to take official photos. For the fire department, I see absolutely no reason why they would need to take pictures, but their defense was that they took the photos for PIO or public information purposes. And in the grand scheme of things, whether or not I agree with them taking the photos in the first place is actually irrelevant. The problem is that they shared them inappropriately afterwards. Vanessa Bryant's lawyers say the firefighters allegedly showed photos of dead bodies from the crash scene to their girlfriends and wives while at an awards banquet at a Hilton hotel. Kobe Bryant's wife, Vanessa Bryant, filed a lawsuit several months after the accident due to the fire department and the sheriff department sharing graphic photos of the bodies of Kobe and their daughter, Gianna. One of the firefighters was a Los Angeles County fire captain who was attending a cocktail hour at the Radio and Television News Association Golden Mike Awards just a few weeks after the crash when the captain and his wife called people over to their area to laugh and show pictures of Kobe's body with another L.A. County captain even stating, I can't believe I just looked at Kobe's burnt up body and now I'm about to eat. And on top of that, a sheriff's deputy also took pictures on his personal cell phone and then texted and airdropped them to several other deputies and at least one unnamed and unknown firefighter. One of the deputies who received the photos then visited a local bar and showed the photos in great detail to the bartender. That lawsuit eventually went to trial, which took place just a few months ago, with a verdict coming on August 25, 2022, with the jury awarding $31 million in damages, with $16 million going to Vanessa Bryant and $15 million going to Chris Chester, whose wife and daughter also died in the crash. Now, this story is filled with tragedy from beginning to end, and everyone involved with the actual flight seemed like good people with good intentions, but man, there were some poor decisions made by several people. This pilot was clearly experienced, but as is all too often the case, complacency got the best of him. Not because he didn't care, and not because he was a terrible pilot, and not because he had a close relationship with Kobe, but because his planned continuation bias continued to tell him that he could somehow beat the weather. But complacency also caused the off-going radar controller to assume that this flight did not need his flight-following services. He assumed that they would be too low for radar and radio communications, and they were not. And then, when getting relieved by another controller, failed to tell that relief about this helicopter, where they were, and where they were going. And by not communicating this appropriately or using the required checklist, the ongoing controller had no clue this helicopter was even on his screen and therefore was not able to provide any form of flight following or provide any alerts to worsening weather, terrain, or erratic flight patterns. And finally, there were some absolutely terrible decisions made by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department as well as the Los Angeles County Fire Department. Multiple deputies and firefighters took photos that they probably should not have taken, and then, against any and all reasoning and common sense, shared them inappropriately for their own personal and selfish gain. So what would have prevented this crash? Having an IFR-rated aircraft and pilot. Clouds shouldn't be the defining factor as to whether or not passengers live or die. Private pilots want to fly a VFR and take the risk? Well, this is America. Do what you want. Paying customers, whether it was Kobe and his family and friends on this flight or medical and trauma patients on a medical helicopter, do not understand VFR and IFR. They just know and have an expectation that their flight crew is going to get them safely from point A to point B, just like you do when you get on a commercial flight. The accident pilot's brother even argued in court that Kobe and the other passengers knew the risks when getting on this helicopter. Did he? Did these coaches and parents know? Did these three children know the risks of getting on this helicopter? Man, when you go skydiving, you know the risks of doing so. You have to sign waivers after being told that the parachute might not open and you might die. But you understand the risks, so you sign the document and you jump anyway. 
passengers aboard an aircraft that is flying under Part 135 do not know these risks. They do not know that clouds could kill them. How would they know? Yes, accidents can happen, but they hardly ever happen, and this is why we call them incidents or collisions and not accidents. Incidents are preventable, accidents are not. Now, there are plenty of private helicopter companies that are IFR rated and fly IFR flights all day and night, and plenty of air medical helicopters that do as well. It is a cost, but it is a cost that drastically raises the safety of any flight. Same too goes for dual pilots. Yes, spatial disorientation has been documented in double IMC cases with dual pilots, but even the NTSB has recommended and noted that dual pilots would be an amazing safeguard in preventing double IMC events from occurring. Now, the last thing I will say in terms of the cause that has been argued is that this helicopter did not have a helicopter terrain awareness warning system, otherwise known as TAWS. Now, while I find it absolutely unbelievable that this helicopter did not have this major safety device, which is now required on all EMS helicopters, I do not see how this could have prevented the crash. TAWS is designed to alert the pilot of terrain and obstacles to prevent them from having a controlled flight into terrain. Controlled flight into terrain is not what happened in this case. Trust me, check out this video for an example of a controlled flight of a helicopter flying directly into a radio tower on a nice sunny day. With Kobe's crash, the pilot was so disoriented, he didn't even know which way was up. Had he heard a loud TAWS warning, he would most likely have been confused by it or simply ignored it altogether. This story is sad. I am sad for Kobe and the other eight people who lost their lives on this helicopter, including the pilot. I'm sad for the family and friends of those on board, but the lessons learned here are invaluable. Every day, the helicopter industry gets safer and safer, and that increased safety usually comes by way of learning from the past mistakes. I hope that any pilots or crew members who watch this video can value the danger of double IMC conditions, that the controllers stick to their checklists, and that the deputies and firefighters of Southern California and everywhere else in America keep their phones in their pockets on these types of scenes. In the end, I thank you all for watching. If you have a story that you want me to cover, please let me know in the comments below. Please stay safe, take care of each other, and I do hope that you all have a beautiful rest of your day.